Welcome to episode 441 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to be kicking off our Michelle Yao series mm-hmm. with 1992's Police Story 3 Super Cop and 1994 or 1993. 1993 Super Cop 2. 93 Super Cop 2. And uh, we divvied it up a little bit. So we're going to have myself and um, Michael a little bit talking about Super Cop, and then Andrew's going to handle Super Cop 2. But isn't Michael also going to talk about Yes, Madam? And and Michael's going to talk about Yes, Madam, which is another early Michelle Yao movie. It's a really, like... um, Really, really manic episode to start off the series. <laughs> well, hey, maybe now would be a good time to announce that we're like branching out and trying new things yeah. uh, with the podcast a little bit structurally. No, so uh, a little, a little programming note for our, our podcast listeners. Um, since since we started this thing in in all in all 2014. Man, simpler times. Yeah, in all 2014, we've uh, we've been a weekly podcast for the most part. We had a little rocky start at the beginning, but then we hit settled in where we were doing it uh, just about every week from then on out. Um, because you know, life life is in 2014. We were just you know in college or getting out of college. Now we have jobs and wives and in Michael's case, children. And so. Uh, <laughs> So we're going to be shifting our release schedule. So rather than doing it weekly, we're going to be doing it every two weeks. So um, two, so uh, not a giant change, but um, I think, uh, and, and y'all can speak after me, I think it's going to be a nice welcome addition just because it'll allow us, you know, maybe we can start getting some more guests back on. Maybe we can get more people on. I think uh, you'll see... Um, Andrew, Michael, Jesse, you know, some of the the frequent people um, coming on more often just because we'll have a lot more time to plan recording and do things like that. And I think it'll also branch out our series because when you have, you know, a kind of two week window to record, uh, you know, some of these episodes where we cover a movie or two um, are a little bit more manageable. So I think in the long run, it's going to pay off. Sometimes we'll cover three movies. Or Sometimes you'll cover three movies like this. We're just all going crazy. Um, but I think in the long run, it's going to pay off. But so Cinematary is going to be every two weeks now instead of weekly. Yeah. And if people have suggestions for other ways to that we might uh, mix the formatting of the show up at all, um, like we would be happy to hear those uh, suggestions. I actually kind of like the idea of having maybe like an episode, a series where we all kind of branch out and look at. Uh, a specific movie, like a different movie, and then kind of report back. Uh, the educational word for it is jigsawing, <laughs> uh, but it might be a good way to kind of like get a broader scope of whatever subject we're looking at, even if we only have a limited amount of weeks to we'll do it. Think pair share thrown in there. Think pair share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Pedagogy Podcast yeah. with Mr. O'Malley and Mr. Swafford. <laughs> you know. Uh... We, it, it's been going on, if I say 2014, so next year it'll be 10 years, a decade of Cinematary. We're tra- yeah, holy it's, shit. Exactly. So we got to mix things up a little bit. We got to spice up the relationship again, you know? We're getting, <laughs> now, I don't want to say we were getting stale, but uh, we definitely were leaning on the formula for a while. So uh, I would say we were getting like a little run down. I think that it, because you said we have like really uh, busy lives 
And uh, the show is a lot of work. Like for you to produce, especially Zach, I can't believe you've managed to squeeze in um, editing an episode of this every week for almost the last 10 years. Uh, insane. I'm just really talented. So <laughs> that's, that's it. That's the only possible explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get to the stuff. Uh, Let's get to the stuff that the people come for, and that's uh, movies that we saw this week, specifically body horror, us talking about body horror, which seems to be a theme lately. Everyone's favorite. Wait, what have been the other body horror movies? We've talked about Crimes of the Future. What else? Oh, uh, The Autopsy. That was one. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's add a third here. I'm test. I'm testing it to y'all. I will say <laughs> we're, we're talking about Infinity uh, Pool, which is the new movie by Brandon Cronenberg. But I will say that like it's fairly light on the body horror if you're coming into it like thinking Crimes of the Future or David Cronenberg. Honestly, like it's got a lot of hot people in it um, <laughs> for a body horror movie, and their bodies mostly stay intact um, with a few exceptions. So, right, you're mostly seeing. Uh, like fun question mark things happen to people's bodies, uh, but sometimes people wear masks that are scary. Masks are pretty scary. Uh, the masks look like twisted up faces, but um, you're not seeing people like fuck by performing surgery on each other. They're anything, just regular right? like, they're, <laughs> That's that's a pretty high watermark for body horror, I guess. Um, but Infinity Pool, um, like Michael said, by Brandon Cronenberg. Um, I was honestly a little disappointed by. Um, I was a huge fan of Brandon Cronenberg's last movie, uh, Possessor. Um, I think it is one of the best body horror movies that we've gotten in the last five-ish years. Um, I can't really think of very many other than the one made by the guy's own dad that like reaches that high watermark. Um, but uh, you know, so maybe he was bound to uh, have a you know not as good uh, successor uh, but this movie uh, to me felt possess you know this movie is a possessor successor so <laughs> that's a that's a high bar to clear um yeah i just found that it was kind of um not super compelling on a plot level to be honest um it has a really cool concept it has this sci-fi concept uh kind of at the center of the movie uh, that i've seen some critics refuse to reveal so i'm curious michael what your stance on whether or not we should reveal that is but i feel like i did not know this concept moving in that's true it's also the core of the movie basically but it also doesn't actually it it shows up as a surprise maybe half an hour into the movie so i don't know i'm torn yeah i mean think Um, about let's think about us right in us you have this central conceit of all the characters have like another self that lives underground um and we learn that in like the first 20 minutes of the movie but they also advertise it in the trailers infinity pool they're doing the like neon a24 style like extremely elliptical trailer and I can't tell if, you know, it is important for this information to not be revealed um, or if that it, they're just kind of like using it as a tactic to get people in the seats. I, I do think that it is the narrative hook of the movie. And if you're not interested already in simply like Brandon Cronenberg doing it, it is a movie that in a lot of ways is similar to Possessor because it's dealing with body doubles, is dealing with like kind of 
the issues like surrounding like wealth and bodies and like kind of like a political autonomy in a way and control like it's it's hitting a lot of the same beats as possessor and like it's been a long time since i saw his first movie but i have vague memories of having a lot of those same themes in that one too um so like if that general thing doesn't um inherently interest you the the narrative hook might you know which is yeah. i don't know i Do guess just i would say, say like, like warning spoilers or if if that if just like Brandon Cronenberg's name does hook you and you want to go see the movie, you know, sight unseen for that reason, like you should maybe skip the next part of the podcast. Um, but I think we do need to kind of talk about what the movie is about. Um, so essentially it is set at a resort. Um, it stars, um, Oh gosh, which Skarsgård is in this one? Alexander. I freaking remember which Skarsgård is which. <laughs> it's Alexander. Yeah. So it's, we have, it's from Northman guy. We have Alexander. Yeah, but I can't remember which. Alexander. Alexander. Yeah, Alexander's okay. true blood. Bill is it, and Stellan is the father. I have already forgotten. <laughs> That's too confusing already. Uh, but anyways, this movie stars Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, he is a. Um, somewhat failed writer uh, and he is at a resort a very very um, high-end resort um, with his wife question mark girlfriend uh, played by Cleopatra Coleman who I've not seen anything else but to your point she was in she was in um, that show the last man on earth with um, uh, like January Jones and stuff yeah. anyway, that's and Will Forte yeah Will Forte Deep cut. Yeah. yeah it was a good show to Michael's point about this movie having a lot of hot people in it, she is one of the most attractive people I've ever seen in my life. Super hot. So, like, just a, you know, <laughs> this is in no way like a besmirchment on her acting ability, but also, like, you, if you go to this movie, you get to see her face for a little while, which I think is a selling point. Um, but also, um, Mia Goth um, is there at this uh, very fancy resort, and she introduces herself as a major fan of Alexander Skarsgård's work. Um, she ends up his one his one book that she just thinks is brilliant. Yeah, supposedly the only fan of Alexander Skarsgård's book. Um, and, and he, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, she ends up kind of be, being this like temptress character, kind of like pulling him away from his wife, getting him to do things that he um, wouldn't otherwise want to do because he's so enticed by her. So like sexual allure is kind of baked into the way this movie is operating on a very basic level, right? In the same way that it does in, in David Cronenberg's Crash or something like that. Um, but um, he ends up getting arrested for a crime that he does while he's hanging out with me about Goth's character. Um, and he finds out that in this country, which I actually am not sure, is this a fictional country or a real country? It's a fake, it's a fake country. I think a kind of neb, like ethnically ambiguous country that it kind of, I think it was filmed in Croatia, but there's like a fake like script everywhere. That's like, I guess their language and like, it's like one of these countries that seems like ravaged by colonialism. And so their tourism industry is kind of like a thing that props up some like local, like jur like local jurisdictions, treasuries, basically. Exactly that. And the governance of this country, which like, I can't tell is like, 
are we doing a critique of colonialism or are we doing some xenophobia stuff where the, the way this government operates is that like they just execute you for any crime. <laughs> and uh, it, the, the loophole is uh, for these characters, the central hook of the movie that if you can, if you have enough money to pay for it, the government can clone you and they can execute your clone instead. Um, and like, <laughs> it's indicated that this is like a long tradition, like, and like almost like they have secret technology or something like that because they can't replicate it elsewhere. But also like maybe like there's, there's like, they, they say that the culture is like an honor tradition where like a capital offense has to be responded by a, the family of the person who was harmed by the capital offense. And so, um, uh, like that's why and so I, I can imagine like some like older version of this that wasn't cloning people but merely like kind of sacrificial like people being killed in the stead of powerful people maybe right I don't know. there's maybe like an implied backstory there um, that sounds like the adventure time episode where princess bubblegum keeps making this award-winning banana guard and then he like and then he goes off and then will like disappear and then she'll just make another one so they keep thinking he's alive it's actually not that dissimilar from that (laughs) yeah it is not that dissimilar from that and so there are questions that emerge about identity right like alexander skarsgård's character is unsure whether or not the version of him that got executed is actually him and he is now the clone because the clones have the memories of the previous person like the person that they so, were cloned so from. like he kind of keeps doing crimes and is wondering if he's like becoming a copy of a copy of a copy of himself um based on the the way that he keeps like <laughs> getting his real self perhaps executed um and you know that is a really interesting central concept but i would say that outside of like the general conceit of what the movie is about there's not a ton of interesting plot or characters to speak of. Um, and there's it doesn't feel super thematically interesting on a, on a minute-by-minute level either to me. Um, it does have some, some visual flair to it. There are some uh, montage sequences that have a lot of crazy stroby editing and interesting music. Um, though I would uh, agree with some critics of Brandon Cronenberg that like the music can sometimes be sort of drony um in place of like actually interesting like melodic ideas um like this is a serious movie so we have this big loud minor chord being held out um for for 30 seconds um but you know there there's interesting stuff visually going on it's not quite as um ambitious uh, in that department as possessor was the um titular possessing scenes where people's bodies and minds were being transplanted into each other um, are like really captivating um, in that movie and like astounding in terms of the 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 technical craft like how did they do some of this practical effects work um, this movie is surprisingly light on that um, the cloning process is never really shown <laughs> to the audience um, you're just kind of being asked to imagine it between shots and so i mean there the movie just kind of left something to be desired for me um 
but I will say that that Mia Goth is just having a hell of a time. Uh, and oh and God, if you are dude. on the, the Mia Goth train right now, which does seem to be like really rolling, uh, she has been in so much like really good, somewhat under the radar stuff over the last uh, several years. Uh, High Life by Claire Denis, um, X and Pearl. I haven't seen Pearl yet, but I know that she's like wild Cure for in it. Wellness. Cure for Wellness, Emma, Suspiria, like. This is somebody who got their start in Nymphomaniac. Um, and, like, that's a movie that... Was that her first role? That was role? her first movie. Oh, my like, gosh, Mia dude. Goth rolled up <laughs> to the film industry and said, I'm a freak. Like, cast me as a freak in all of your movies. He's, she's kind of like the uh, the female Barry Keegan. Uh, like, every time that guy shows up, I'm like, I'm about to see a new type of weird guy. Uh, Mia Goth is doing that uh, in this movie for sure. They should, that like, not to, like... Not to be the person who's like, they, this just should be the the casting in a superhero thing. But since they're going to make Barry Keegan the Joker in the new Batman <laughs> oh movie, God. they might as well what? just make Mia Goth what? the Harley Quinn. You know what? I would watch that. I would watch yeah. Barry Keegan as the Joker and Mia Goth as Harley Quinn. You have me on record. Yeah, I want to see their like <laughs> abusive relationship. Because <laughs> this is also a movie about an abusive relationship. Um, it is like Mia Goth humiliation doming. Alexander Skarsgård for 100%. Yeah. (laughs) There's even a scene in which uh, she leads around Alexander Skarsgård in a leash. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I, the way that I just described it, the movie sounds fantastic, but I did not love watching it to be honest. Um, What did you think, Michael? I liked it. I agree with you saying it's not as good as Possessor. Possessor is really good. But I think, like, for me, it's scratching the same itch as Possessor, which is, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but both Daddy and and Sonny Cronenberg are kind of, like, doing <laughs> His something. His name is Baby Cronenberg. Baby. Yeah, the Nepo Baby Cronenberg and original Cronenberg. Um, they're, they're both doing something that I really like, which is that they're making movies that feel like kind of like new wave science fiction. Um, like, this... This story feels like a lost J.G. Ballard, or this movie feels like a lost like J.G. Ballard short story or something like that. Um, and I like that. There's like, I don't know, and maybe this is just like because we live in a different film landscape and I'm nostalgic or something, but like there used to be all sorts of movies that were just like, hey, here's this weird concept that we're just going to kind of explore and be kind of weird with it and... um you know, you're not exactly sure where it's going to go, but we're just going to like iterate on this cool concept. And I think this movie does a good job of that. Um, like, I just like that. Um, I, I like that feeling of it, like, you know, reminding me of like sci-fi I used to really like, uh, or I still really like. And it's an interesting enough concept in this movie that it takes a while for it to feel like it's simply just iterating on it. Although I do think the end is the weakest part. Like, I'm really not sure. This movie it just kind of fizzles out. Yeah, yeah this movie kind of, like, runs out of things to do with that concept and then just ends. And I, I think that that's the weakest element of the movie. But, like, I was having a good time most of this movie. I think it's very funny um, in a way that, like, Possessor I didn't find very funny. Like, Possessor was very arresting and uncomfortable. But this movie, like, has edits in it that i think are like edits specifically trying to get laughs and they the, did the in our cut theater to, 
Alexander Skarsgård and company being in jail for the second time is yeah. hysterical. Yeah, <laughs> it is very funny. There's also a little bit later in that sequence, there's like a little bit of a surprise reveal that I think is also a little bit funny um, where it kind of like changes the point of view of the sh- of the, the sequence and you see like actually what's been happening. True, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think like the way that Mia Goth's like femme fatale character is like slowly revealed over the course of the movie, like... It becomes incredibly funny <laughs> like i don't know that's true there, yeah like there's just some stuff i mean for one mia goth is like just going hard like she's just like she is like you know t- towing the line of like camp like it's like that level of performance um but also like the things that she is doing um to like manipulate and humiliate alexander skarsgård's character are just like like they're just so funny to me because he's such a sad pathetic guy like it's revealed at the beginning of the movie that um the reason he got his book published was because he married uh the publisher who published his book like he married the publisher's daughter excuse me yeah he married the daughter of the publisher who published his book and the publisher uh his father-in-law hates him and presumably because the book didn't sell (laughs) so apparently the i have not actually heard the term nepo babies until the last couple of weeks um as i've seen people talking about this movie but apparently a lot of folks are interpreting this movie to be about uh nepo babies or if you are a boomer like me and don't know what that means uh a nepotism baby somebody who's in an industry uh because they are the kid of somebody who's important in that industry or you know they married into that industry or whatever this is a a theme that is would obviously be resonant to brandon cronenberg um though i don't know if the movie necessarily does a whole lot with it um it Reminds me a little bit of the the discourse that has been happening around the menu, a, a movie that I have not and don't really this want to see. This movie is ten thousand times better than the menu. It, like, well, I'm not I saying it's seen not it, as good. This, yeah. this movie's just pretty good, but it's like way better than the menu. I'm sure the menu is not nearly as like interesting as Infinity Pool. Um, but the the point that I'm making is that a lot of folks have been criticizing that movie for just kind of saying rich people bad. Um, and stepping away from it. Um, and I I don't necessarily know if Brandon Cronenberg, despite being so close to this material thematically, like really gets at much specific about it. Um, Maybe not. I, I don't know. I do do you disagree, Michael? I don't know. Like, is this movie making points that have never been made before? Like, no. Like, it's... But I do think it's, like, more interesting than simply rich people bad. Like, on the one hand, you have, like, the kind of self-loathing aspect of it in which you see, like, this guy who only has an artistic career because... And he says this openly. Like, the Alexander Skarsgård character, like, says this openly. Like, uh, someone was like... uh, what do you do for a living? And he's like, Oh, I'm married. I'm, I'm married to money for a living. And like, they, they make a joke about how like our marriage is becoming a charity or something like that. Like there's an extreme self-loathing with the way that like artists have to like cozy up to wealth and power and, uh, in order to exist on any level. And then it may not even be good. Like there's a, like this movie humiliates Alexander Skarsgård by the end. Um, like he is a shell of a man by the end of the movie and he may actually be a shell of a man because he may actually be a clone by the end of the movie it's left a little (laughs) open-ended that's Um, true yeah (laughs) but also like i do think and it's i don't know if it's especially deep but like this movie is 
at least saying something adjacent to like what not just rich people bad but like what do rich people do with money and like the basically use it to get away with bad behavior they use it to get away with bad behavior but also like they've created like if if we like buy into the extreme subtext like very deep subtext of like this being like an island nation that because of xyz thing done by western powers in the past probably at the behest of rich people has you know, just become this very, like, they talk about being very poor and very, like, troubled with violence and stuff like that. And the tourism industry is, like, these resorts that are very nice, but literally, like, barricaded with barbed wire and armed guards. They're um, fortresses. Right. And so these are, like, enclaves of the rich who uh, who are basically, like, allowing colonialism to still exist on some level, just in a different form. Because it is, you know, this is no different than, like, you know, uh, you know, a, a, the palace of like some like, you know, colonial um, like overseer or something, you know, but the only difference is now anyone who's rich enough can just pay to come to the island and have a nice weekend or a couple of weeks or whatever. And like by extension, the way that um, the island nation has um, like props up, like like they talk about how this cloning program is an offset of their um it's like it's a subset of their tourism industry like it's out of their bureau of tourism or something like that where rich people who behave badly um and commit crimes um can be cloned but they have to pay a ton of money into the country like there's something about like that being connected to the tourism and like so it's not just like rich people behaving badly it's that like the way in which like the effects of like colonialism and capitalism or whatever has left certain communities with no choice, but to allow rich people to have um, this bad behavior. So long as the rich people underwrite like the bare, like basic existence of these places as like states. And I, I'm not saying the movie has something really deep to say about it, but it, it's different than a lot of these like eat the rich movies in the sense of it's not simply saying, well, there are rich people and there are poor people and we should kill the rich people. Like it's, it's, there's Mm -hmm. a little more going on than that. That's fair. Yeah. I I had not considered the, the way that in which that like smaller scale conflict is tied to the larger scale one in the backdrop of the movie. That's a good point. I think moreover, like I just had fun in this movie. Like, it's very gruesome and gross at times, but not nearly as much as I was expecting. Like a lot of it is really just, um, just, just, uh, well, like I've already said, like the kind of, um, downfall of Skarsgård's character. Um, but also like just watching these kind of ludicrous characters just, just eat up the screen, especially Mia Goth and, um, doing it in this like sci-fi context in which the, like, the kind of like sci-fi thing it ends up like kind of interweaving in and ends up making like kind of weird jokes um, and playing into like they're kind of like not just in a way that is like helping them get away from crimes, but also um, just making like weird punchlines. Like there's a few things that are like like reveals in the last half of the movie that are like very, very like kind of messed up and but also kind of funny because it's just outrageous and the way that they're acting is like outrageous. And I don't know. I, I just found it like a, a good time. It was a good time with the movies. 
I do kind of wish that the um, the characters themselves felt like they had a little bit more personality and weren't uh, just these types um, or like just one type of just like, you know, rich asshole who thinks they can get away with whatever. Um, but that also might be part of to, to the movie's point of all these people being shells of themselves because of what wealth has kind of allowed them to become. Um, but uh I think it is probably more enjoyable if you go into it expecting it to be kind of like a, a dark sci-fi rather than a, a horror movie. Yeah, it kind um, of reminded me of like, um, it's not like a Paul Verhoeven movie in the sense of um, like that, like a satire. I mean, there's a satirical element to it, but it's not like that level. It's not like that tone of satire, but it reminds me of the kind of movie that Paul Verhoeven would have been interested in in his like RoboCop Total Recall era, you know, where you have this kind of like hooky premise that he uses to be like kind of tongue in cheek in a lot of ways, but also like extremely button pushing and violent at times too. Well, we've gone about 25 minutes on Infinity Pool. So, <laughs> apologies. About a third of the runtime of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we got two. Zach, what do you got? <laughs> I got. I don't have that much. <laughs> you don't have that much. <laughs> um, we have two other. I have two other movies here, though. We. I mean, we have time for them, but. Uh, well, you you can go, and then yeah, we might hear take whatever you left. Sack. I don't know. Y'all were y'all were really killing it. I don't really have much to say about the movie I was going to talk about because it was on our best of the year list. I just caught it, and we've talked about it countless times on this podcast. And I feel like maybe three. I I can count to okay. three. We talked about it three <laughs> times on this podcast. Um, but it's we're, we're all going to the World's Fair by Jane uh, Schoenbrunn. Um, it's on HBO Max still, so I caught it. Um, uh, not not super not super familiar with uh, uh, what's it called? What's it called? Uh, creepy pasta. Pasta. I'm not super familiar with creepy pasta. That's not the the uh, side of the internet that uh, that I'm on ever. So, but um, <laughs> I kind of agree. We're just really dating ourselves as old men in this. I episode. guess creepy pasta was around when we were young. Yeah, it was. It's also, just not something I, I remember. It's just not something that. I'm I'm engaging with. I guess that's it's more hanging on to my youth. God damn it. Old critics watch new movies. <laughs> TBH. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I kind of agree with, uh, I think, Jessica's review of it from when we did it for the best of the of the year pod a couple weeks ago. It's not really a scary movie. But in terms of like, there's no like, there's no jump scares. There's no like creature in the background. Nothing like that. It's more like sad and scary and like a, I feel I feel really bad for this person. <laughs> like um after a while like you get deeply concerned about the the main character Casey um as she becomes like immersed in this in this role playing game that she's engaging with um but yeah, it was it was one that like when I f- I finished watching it, I kind of was like, oh okay, but I, I I definitely it grew in my estimation as I thought about it a lot uh, more and more afterwards. Um, it just kind of has these like 
and I, I I'm gonna assume that this is like a trade of creepy pasta, like these kind of just long, long sequences um, where nothing's really happening. Maybe like she's like looking at the camera, or or just kind of like lying in bed, or there's literally you know her lying in bed, like recording herself sleeping at one point. Um, that becomes just unsettling over like because you're kind of sitting there like like with a horror movie like geared for something to like shock you and nothing really ever shocks you to the mo for the most part um but you're like like because you have that heightened anxiety you're just like all right when's it gonna happen when's it gonna happen um and so you kind of go about this movie always thinking that like you know like a slasher's going to come out or some monster's going to come out and that never happens it's it's literally just it's like all of the all of the the kind of horror and fear in the movie is all internalized um both with the Casey character and the um uh JLB character this this um this man who she's she's um communicating with online who's also participating in these role playing games um and i think it just kind of, it really it seems to epitomize this this um uh it's a kind of play on words but the social distancing and you know that that i think a lot of uh people around that age or in just in general have gone through, um, with the pandemic and, and just other, like the way that, um, the internet has kind of allowed us to engage with people, but also, um, change like, like abstract, yeah, abstract, them. like the, the nature of the relationships. Um, like even this, this role-playing game that they're doing, it's like, you know, you do like the initiation thing and then you're just kind of like posting videos, but you're, but it's, it's, and it's like, I don't know if this was like a decision because of like copyright or licensing or something, but it's not even on like, like YouTube or Vimeo or something. It's like this whole other video platform. And it's like, you do the initiation and then you just start posting these videos of like what you're kind of getting out of it. Um, and it also kind of, um, you know, tickles this idea of, you know, performing for performing for on your like your on like what is your persona your online persona versus like who you are in reality um that i think is kind of fascinating and when it starts kind of getting into that that's where it really started to um to kind of turn in my mind but um if i mean i don't know if you're kind of interested in like just that side like well, just like that kind of the, 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 that emotional state that like kind of philosophy of the internet of, of just, you know, almost anthropologically how the internet is, 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 um, is morphing relationships. I think that you should definitely see we're all going to the world's fair. Um, I thought it was very good. So that's about, yeah. Lovely movie. Where can people watch it now? It's, it's on HBO max right now. Nice for free. Well, if you have HBO max, it's yeah. for free, but, but no people should watch it sign off on it um do y'all want to talk about another movie or are we going to just dip into part two um i'm good michael if you want to talk about um the george miller movie you could yeah i, I can do it real quick uh i won't i won't go too long on it but i watched uh three thousand years of longing 
which is the latest George Miller directed movie, his first since Mad Max Fury Road. And I feel bad for this movie because there's there's no way whatever George Miller released was going to make people as excited as Mad Max Fury Road. For one, it's not an original like it's an original thing. It's not like a tie in to an existing brand. For two, it's doing something so completely different from honestly most George Miller movies that I've seen. Like most the George Miller movies I've seen, um, which are the Happy Feet movies and the Mad Max movies and the Jack Nicholson which movie? What's that called again? Uh oh god, what is that movie called? Um Witches of Eastwick, is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. But also Babe Pig in the City. Them... Oh yeah, 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 of course. Of course. <laughs> he How does a I lot of, he's um... working in a lot of modes. <laughs> Yeah, so he's a kind of, of fascinating movies... dude. He's like, 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 who goes from Happy Feet, Babe Pig in the City to like Mad Max Fury Road and just the Mad Max movies in general? Like, it's I think that all of it. those have like a through line though, and that they're all kind of apocalyptic. Uh, they all have this energy to them that's very manic and intense. Uh, they're all like quasi like allegory things, like. There's, I don't know, there's... The there's, apocalypse can, of Babe Pit, Pig in the City. In this essay, I will... <laughs> Babe Pig in the City like is a, the same plot as Eyes Wide Shut. No, it it's not. A, it, there are things about it that are similar. But anyway, regardless. So this doesn't, at least compared to the other George Miller movies, it's just on a completely different mode, which is very slow and contemplative, but also about a genie. Um, so the plot is that um, um, Tilda Swinton's character is um, in Turkey, I believe, um, and she's like a college professor who studies like stories and like not like an English professor, but like studies the structures of stories or whatever. Um, and she runs across this bottle in like an old antique shop and it turns out this bottle is a genie in it because when she goes back to her hotel room she's like trying to clean it off and rubs the bottle and then poof out comes a genie who is idris elba and um wait is she a a folklorist is that the term i don't know if she's a folk i don't remember her being described as that in the movie but maybe that's the real world term for it um but anyway so idris elba comes up as as a genie and is the whole like you know you get three wishes thing um and what ends up happening is about two thirds of the movie is inside that hotel room where Tilda Swinton is nervous to make a wish because she knows enough about stories to know that the wishes never pan out like how people want. You know, there's wish stories are always cautionary tales. And so she's got to figure out like what are wishes. Meanwhile, Idris Elba, this genie has been imprisoned in this bottle um, for literally 3000 years, hence the title. Um, and wants to get out of the bottle. And so it's almost like a Scheherazade type setup where um, the genie starts telling her stories about like all the different people that he has uh, encountered as a genie in a bottle. So he starts up out with like before he was a genie in a bottle, uh, he was a regular person and um, how he gets tricked into the bottle and everything. And it's like this very kind of it's the kind of fantasy movie that doesn't really get made very much anymore and really never got made that often, which is like, it's not very high concept. There's no world ending stakes. There's not like even like cool creatures or anything like that. All it is, is like, uh, there's a magic there's, there's like basically the kind of like magic of the Arabian nights is just real. And so like you're hearing these stories being told by the genie 
And they're oftentimes like very sad. Um, like there are stories in which the genie is simply trapped in his bottle trying to t like communicate with people outside so he can tell them things. Or um, like the bottle will get thrown to the bottom of the ocean. And so he's going to have to just sit there for however long it will take until someone can pull out the bottle again uh, and find it, you know, and it's, uh, it ends up being this kind of like meditation on like, why, like how, how do we deal with the passage of time and like what role does telling stories play in that? Um, and it eventually, like, it's not like a perfect movie. There's some kind of weird stuff, especially towards the end. Cause they eventually leave the hotel room and like for reasons that maybe only make sense within the logic of the movie, Tilda Swinton decides that she and the genie are going to live like domestically together in her flat back in England and, um, or Scotland. I can't remember where she's supposed to, the UK. Um, and, uh, like there's all sorts of weird domestic stress there involved with that. And eventually there's this kind of like semi-tragic ending that ends up being this kind of like really lovely ending as well. And eventually it lands strong, but there's like a little bit of shaky stuff in like, you know, what we would call like the third act, if this is a movie that has like act structures. Um, but it's good. Um, I recommend it. Uh, I don't recommend going into it with like even a glimmer of Mad Max in your mind. Like it's not that kind of movie. Um, and uh, it's, I don't know, I, I found it fun and, and enjoyable and like kind of maybe not like profound and deep in like some sort of like, you know, really like, you know, vanguard way, but like it is a story that's well told and like movingly told, I think, um, and told with a lot of sincerity. And I know George Miller is still planning on releasing more Mad Max films. Um, and so he's, it's not he's filming one right now. Yeah. He's filming Furiosa, which supposedly comes out next year, which is crazy. Um, but he is 77 years old. And I'm wondering if you see this movie as like one of those movies, like the Fablemans or the Irishman or something like that, where it's kind of a old guard filmmaker sort of reflecting upon their status as a storyteller or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of like that. I think George Miller is not like a storyteller auteur in the way that we consider like Spielberg to be, you know, like I don't think his movies are generally known for their stories. They're more like, like, like spectacle and like tech, technical wizardry kind of movies. But I think it is definitely that it's also definitely one of the, like I made a movie that was in really successful and really well recorded. And now I'm going to burn this pile of cash on a movie that probably will not be nearly as accept, as successful. Like this is definitely a movie that like, were it not for George Miller making the follow up to Mad Max Fury Road. Like, I don't think this movie could have been made. Um, not, not, it it feels like it has strong like early two thousands like pre nine eleven energy. Maybe be that. Maybe. Maybe. How do we feel about the fact that Anya Taylor Joy is supposedly playing Furiosa in the new Furiosa? She is playing Furiosa. Yeah, I don't know. I could be good. I mean, I guess she's I supposed know. to be much younger, so that would make sense. Um, but I will I will miss uh, the old Furiosa. I guess so. I, I do think that Chris Hemsworth's in it as oh, well. Oh, cool, yeah. I'm glad. I'm always glad when Chris Hemsworth gets work that's not uh, Thor because he's he literally. I think I think this was the movie he was talking about. Yeah, he talked about. He was just like, I really I like I like being in good movies. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> <laughs> like that. Hell like yeah, that Chris was that's, that's that's dumbing down the quote, but it was pretty much just like I like being in good movies. That's fun. 
<laughs> this is like an aside, but I do think that like it's a shame that some actors got stuck in Marvel for like a lot of their like movie star years because some of them and I think Chris Hemsworth is one of them are like very charming screen presences that I would like to see do things that aren't their role in Marvel. Um, and whenever Chris Hemsworth does something that's not in a Marvel movie, I'm always like, yeah, this guy has like movie star energy, not just Thor energy. I hope we don't lose uh, Florence Pugh to the Marvel machine. Oh Please flow. Um, but anyway, yeah, 3000 years of longing. Good movie. Also probably a movie to see because like, I saw someone say this on Letterboxd, and I think it's true, like, there's only so many more of these, like, uh, you know, there was this whole generation of filmmakers that came of age in, like, the 70s, basically, you know, who kind of, like, cut their teeth on becoming, like, genre filmmakers, but kind of revealed themselves to be, like, you know, interested in, in, like, you know, broadening their horizons a little bit beyond that. And, like, that generation is getting close to dying off. You know, like, the James Cameron, Spielbergs, like, uh, George Miller's, like, those guys I are... I don't think James Cameron will ever die. <laughs> he's working on the doubling thing currently. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be in, be, he's going to be Infinity Pool. Or, uh, or uh, the uh, Way of Water thing, where they're just going to re-implant his memories in a Navi or something. Uh, and they'll make, like, a, and it'll be, like, a teenage James Cameron, like a yeah. teenage Sigourney Weaver. But everyone besides that uh is gonna die off probably in the next 10 to 20 years and i think that the the like kind of hot like new directors or not even new but like you know directors who like were popular and have done genre work you know in like let's say like the 90s and 2000s are doing much different work and the industry is so much different now that i don't think we're not gonna get like these kind of like old old man makes a kind of like clout flexing movie, you know, like Steven Soderbergh, you know, he's still hacking away at it, but like, he's not going to make a movie like this, you know, where he's given a stack of cash to just burn. Um, you know, Steven Soderbergh <laughs> kind of like thrives on the budgetary limitations that he has kind of worked himself into. And like a lot of people either are that, or they've kind of like semi-retired into just doing television or like the occasional Marvel movie or something. Or you have you people know, like and, David Lynch who like can't really get money to make big movies or maybe he doesn't have the the drive to do so at this point. And so what they are doing is kind of like scrolling away in their own uh, rabbit holes, I guess. Right. Just, um, you know, also George Lucas or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola, baby. Mega, Megapolis. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is never going to come out. <laughs> Wait, what is Megapolis? It's like the raincoat or whatever. It's never gonna. We're since we're we're hitting time. Go ahead and just Google Megapolis. We're gonna be right back <laughs> in part two with Super Cop One and Two, baby. After this, and yes, madam. And yes, madam. <laughs>
And we are back with part two of episode 441 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be kicking off our Michelle Yao series with three of her early Hong Kong films. Um, we're going to kick it off with you, Momali. Yeah, so I watched um, Yes, Madam, which is in 1985, and it's one of her first film roles at all. Uh, I think it's maybe her second or third um, like feature film role, and she is top billed. She's on the poster. She is, uh, you know, her name's in the credits near the beginning. Like, this is definitely, like, pushing her as, like, a kind of a star or, like, attraction, right? Um and so originally this was going to be the only movie we talked about in this uh, uh, episode because it kind of looked to be set up as like a movie where, you know, this is kind of Michelle Yao's like, um, uh, you know, arrival as like, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with. And she's very good in this. Uh, I, I don't the thing I'm about to say, I don't want to make it sound like this is like a worthless movie or like a movie in which she's not good, but she's not in it that much. Um, she, the plot of this movie, um, is that there's this like ring, like this crime ring that, um, uh, does crime, of course. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that's what the crime ring in my movie does too. <laughs> oh my God. Same yeah, for me. Thematic, uh, connections. But yeah. the important thing is some of this crime is, uh, caught on film and, um, and, and on a little microfilm. There's like a little, uh, little tiny thing, um. And so um, the uh, Maggie, uh, sorry, not Maggie, geez, uh, Michelle Yao plays this uh, detective inspector person um, with um, Cynthia Rothrock, who I'm actually not familiar with, but is an American martial artist. Um, so they're kind of co like lead is the wrong word, because as I'm as I'm about to get into, she's not really the lead of the movie, but like. They're, they're kind of playing partners in the movie and their goal is they have to find this microfilm that has like all this incriminating evidence for um, the, the, the people in this crime ring. At the same time, the people in the crime ring are also looking for this um, uh, microfilm as well. And um, what ends up happening is that uh, a good portion of this movie uh, gets kind of handed over to these like bumbling like low-level pickpockets who end up with uh the microfilm at one point and a lot of this movie like a lot of this movie uh more so than i was anticipating is kind of their misadventures as they like bumble around like trying not to get killed by either the police or the the crime um syndicate or whatever they're called um and it's a lot of like very like slapsticky comedy and it's not it's not like um uh, martial arts action with them. Like a lot of it is them doing stupid stuff. I saw a lot of people online comparing it to the three stooges and it's kind of on that level where they're, they're kind of imbeciles and they're, um, kind of getting into mishaps that involve them falling down or like being like, you know, mildly inconveniencing other people because of their like haplessness or whatever. And like, I didn't find them terribly interesting, but I also was not, I don't think in the right headspace to appreciate that. Cause I went into this movie thinking like, all right, Michelle Yao martial arts movie. I'm going to see her just like, um, you know, throwing punches and doing stunts and stuff. And the opening of the movie, like primed me for that because the opening of the movie is 
this inspector, you know, um, Michelle Yao's character, as well as Cynthia Rothrock's character, um, going in and doing these incredible martial arts moves in these fight scenes, like with people in this crime syndicate. And so I was like, yes, this is great. You know, um, and then the movie shifts gears and we spend a lot of this movie with the, um, uh, with these low level thieves. And also like, even when it switches back to Michelle Yao, we see her a lot of times in like an administrative role. Um, and not a lot of her like martial arts action because she's like a senior inspector and so there's all these kind of like people under her that she's got to make sure are doing their jobs and stuff and trying to get this microfilm. Um, and so the movie then ends, like bookends the movie with more amazing martial arts stuff from Michelle Yao. There's like this part in particular where they're like fighting in a building. Is it like a, it's maybe like a mall or a market or something like that, but it's got these little um, glass um it's there's like it's like multi-leveled and each level has like a glass panel as like the railing so people don't fall off and there's this one part where she is like jumping from like ledge to ledge and like flips around spins around one of these glass um uh um, railings and like punches through the glass and then like starts punching people upside down through the glass and like there's like stuff like that in the movie that's like great and like i really like it um when the movie's doing that and she's really good at this and i don't i don't know a lot of i i should have looked into her history does she have a is, is does she have a history in martial arts outside of the films like movies because she definitely I have no idea. is i didn't get a chance to to look too into too much into her yet so um. this being such an early role of her she seems fully formed as like a star who like her draw is her physicality and ability to do these kind of like incredible and fun um, action scenes that are very like energetic and it's not exactly like Jackie Chan or it's like reckless. Uh, it's, it seems like very controlled and, you know, she's not really like a person who does slapstick uh, or like silly kind of things like Jackie Chan sometimes does. She's more like almost like a, like just a, just kicking ass, you know? Um, okay. So and... since we're kind of doing the fact sheets for this movie on the fly, I just wanted to mention that I went to Michelle Yeoh's Wikipedia page and found okay, that her early career is actually in modeling. She was a, uh, she was a winner of like beauty pageants. Um, she, w- she like won a beauty pageant in 1983, Miss Malaysia, and then won another one in 84, Miss Moomba. Um, and then, off of the fame of that she was in a commercial with jackie chan um and then like he she according to wiki like got involved in this jackie chan's production company um and started in like that world um okay so like her training as an actress like is in the context of these of the martial arts arts industry yeah that's that's kind of fascinating too because i know before they got uh uh, Kehu Kwan for the role in Everything Everywhere, they wanted Jackie Chan. Oh, man. That would have been great. That would have been such a great reunion. Yeah. So anyway, yes, madam. I, as a movie, I'm a little bit lukewarm with it, you know, for the reasons I already stated. I wonder if it's because I went in expecting something that it wasn't. But the things that I was expecting are in this movie, just kind of at the beginning and end of this movie. Um, and Michelle Yeoh, like I said, is 
um, is very good, like, especially for so early in her career. And especially as like, I'm now hearing like, not as far as I know, someone who like, you know, did, you know, I, I don't know, you know, some, sometimes like, you know, people, you know, with roles as physical have a, a like pre movie career, you know, like, um, how in, in the United States, we have a lot of people come from like professional wrestling into like the movies. And so there's like a kind of like physical training that is inherent in that. And I don't know that she did that. Or maybe they're a choreographer before they're actually in right. the stunt movies. And I don't know that she had, maybe she did. And I, I should have looked, uh, if I had done my research research, but she is very credible as like a star whose, whose draw is her ability to do these mixed martial arts stunt work. And, um, when the movie is on that, it's very good. Uh, when the movie is off of that, it, it did not hold my attention very well. Um, but that's yes, that is ma- such a succinct review of my movie as well. Okay, all right. Uh, maybe we <laughs> yeah. should transition to yours. Then. Wait, well, actually, maybe Zach's first. Well, that's... no, mine's last chronologically. Yeah, you're right. But I will say, like, for a, a little peek behind the curtain of how we plan these um, these actor series on Cinematary, like we we try to get somewhat of like a breadth of their career. Um, we're not going to go up to like super current Michelle Yeoh stuff because like, you know, everything everywhere is already being talked to death. Um, but, um, sometimes when we are pulling like the really early stuff as the, the actor is establishing their career, that actor is not in the movie all that much. Uh, we ran into that problem with, um, Tilda Swinton last year where we, we had a hard time finding one that she was in enough to even justify doing a podcast about it. Right. And I, she is in this movie more than, I don't remember. Was it the last of England? Was that the Tilda Swinton movie that we were going to use? Yeah. And we're, I don't remember. We ended up with Caravaggio, right? Where she's a pretty, she's still a pretty small. Role. Yeah. She is in this movie enough to justify the fact that she's on the poster. She's just not in this movie enough to maybe sustain a whole conversation about her early career, at least without more context. And so, uh, right. I kind of like that we're having this. So it's good shot. that we have the breadth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which is maybe a good way for you to pick up with yours, Zach. Um, cause yours is next, uh, right? Yeah. Mine's next. And I got a fact sheet. All right. Way to go, <laughs> good <Zach>. for you. <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> um, so mine's Police Story 3. We covered Police Story before, so that's, you know, continuing to a degree. Uh, but this is Police Story 3, Super Cop. And let me tell you, they they call, they <laughs> announced Jackie Chan as a Super Cop within the first five minutes. The whole... <laughs> on the side before I get to the fact sheet. Like, they... It's hilarious. The... the, the, the inspect, like, the lead, the, the captain or whatever from Police Stories in it. And they're like trying to, for whatever reason, they like want to convince Jackie Chan's character to like want to do this mission without outright going like, we need you to do this mission. They want like him to come to them. So they like set up this whole thing where like they have the door ajar and they're just like, are you telling me that whatever his name, uh, what is it? Chan, are you telling me that Chan can do this? He's 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 a, he's a super cop. He's our best cop, and he's like, I don't know. He can't. I don't think he has the you know he has the guts to do this. And like Jackie Chan's like outside, and then he comes and he's like, I can do that mission. And he's they're like, oh, perfect, good. Um, I do kind of miss the uh, kind of um, linguistic 
trope and I because I don't think this happens too much anymore but of simply putting super in front of something and you're like oh that's definitely better like super nintendo or um, so much better super yeah like I I do like he's not a cop oh they mentioned that like like they're doing this whole thing where so he go like the plot of the movie is that they're which also is is hilarious like how they set this up because they have um they have this like uh they have this person from china come to hong kong and be like so there's this there's this you know drug cartel that's filtering between the two places and the hong kong police are like here at the hong kong police we take drug cartels very seriously (laughs) and i'm like yeah you're police what else would you do um and so uh so they're like he's Pretty much the movie is Jackie Chan's character is supposed to um, infiltrate this drug cartel and go undercover in a Chinese prison to uh, earn the trust of this cartel member, break him out of prison, and then uh, travel with him to Hong Kong to like loop in with his gang. And Michelle Yao plays um, the like chief special director or whatever for the Chinese uh police force that they're working with um and like they have this training sequence because she's kind of going this is what it's like in china compared to hong kong and like he uh she like recites all this the information he needs to know about the character that he's going to be playing to infiltrate this drug cartel and like he's like messing it up and she's just like you're telling me that you're a super cop and you cannot memorize anything (laughs) i'm like come on you're a super cop So the just the f- Jackie Chan's character in the first police story is a bumbling fool. He's 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 um, kind of that way in sure. this one too. It's we're consistent. Um, but I did have this quote. Uh, I did have this quote of Michelle Yao. It was actually from an interview early last year, um, talking about the climax of this movie, which is just this massive set piece that that they're just like ro- like roiling through Malaysia at this point, and um, she says, "quote In Asia at that time, we really." Uh, we don't really do rehearsals. We don't have weeks of preparation. We learn the stunt and we do it. So you park the truck and Jackie's car next to each other. Cause at this point there's like a big truck that's driving with, um, the drug cartel leader's wife in it, that they're trying to break out of prison because she also did something. They sentenced her to death and they're going to try to escape with her. And so Jackie Chan and Michelle Yao are like driving up next to it. Um, and you look at it and it's about a six foot fall. It's not much. And you think I could do this, but once the, two cars are moving you go oh wow this is a completely different experience i'm not standing still the car isn't nothing is still i don't know whether it was crazy a moment of insanity but the thought that went through my head was you're never going to know how it feels until you try it the windshield was supposed to uh shatter and that would have helped me have a break uh, but the windshield didn't shatter. I had nowhere to hold on to, and I kept sliding off the car. All I remember was Duh, on the ground, For, um, which she does. She just like hits the ground and just starts rolling. You're like, Jesus. Um, fortunately, I didn't go head first. Then I hear Jackie. He was like, okay, okay, that's it. Enough. We're all, we're all, we are finished for the day. We're not doing it anymore. This is stupid. This is ridiculous. We're not doing it. And uh, that's, a, that's her, that's her uh, recounting of that scene. But... Um, uh she's she's pretty great in this one she's um she's she's introduced at the beginning and then it becomes the jackie show for a while as he like infiltrates this drug cartel but then he's an idiot and so she like (laughs) she like works her way in to be like his sister so and then like kind of proves herself to the cartel member as well so he's like we'll just bring both of them so the rest of the movie is just michelle yao and jackie chan um like fighting things off and this movie the plot's pretty pretty 
pretty boring. It's getting kind of stupid. It's, you know, they have to infiltrate this cartel and then like do all this stuff to prove themselves. And then this leader is like, I guess, trying to trying to like get uh like like trade all the heroin like all of he he like moves heroin he's gonna he's like i'm gonna give this guy with weapons all the heroin he's gonna give me weapons which sounds like a terrible combo but you know whatever um (laughs) (laughs) and so uh and so at the end yeah he's like trying to get his the the leader's trying to get his wife from death row and so they break her out of the uh out of the courthouse and then they're just like driving through malaysia and then you have this set piece where they find out that that you know they, they they uncover that they're undercover cops and so then you have jackie chan and michelle yeah who have to help them with the breakout at first but then like turn on on them like mid mid scene and honestly like the, the the set pieces in this thing are fucking insane you have a you have an early one where he's breaking the guy out of prison and he's like this like he, it's almost like he's in a chain gang in a coal mine like it's super weird um but then jackie chan like breaks him out um they have this it like it ends where they like are on top of this mountain and then they 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 zip line like to this hill and the zip lines like it's like one of those if you see like the travel zip lines where you like zip line through a jungle it's like that it's like super long um <laughs> and then they have this great set piece where they're like at a restaurant and these cops are trying to bust them because they've broken out of jail and like michelle Yao tries to defuse it because um she's also a cop and it's like hey we like got this handled and he's like i don't know who you are and like and like hits her and then she just like starts beating him up and then um um, it's a really funny sequence because half of it is police that are working with Michelle Yao who are like pretending to come after them, but also going like wink, wink, like we know it's you and Jackie and this guy like trying to fight people off. Um, but then the last set piece is the one I was describing earlier. And that one's insane. Um, I don't know. All I know is that Mich- is that Michelle Yao is fucking hot in this movie <laughs> that's my that's my that's my uh educated film criticism is michelle yet 30 year old michelle yao is fucking gorgeous a bombshell like i couldn't stop staring at how hot she was over the course of this movie um just like outfit after outfit and it's not even like it's not like you know well i'm sure we'll we'll get to it later when she's in like she's in a bond movie you know where where you're gonna you're there's more like elegant outfits and you're fighting this one she's just kind of in like regular stuff but still looks super hot um and yeah honestly like for the like especially in that last sequence for the most part goes toe-to-toe with jackie chan like jackie has this scene where he jumps off of the top of a building and latch and you know catches this helicopter and is just like holding on to a ladder on the helicopter while they're flying around but then michelle yao does the same thing where like she jumps from a car onto a onto the side of a train and is holding on to the side of a train and like gets up on there as well so it's like um for somebody who uh you know it's not you know who probably who was worked with jackie chan clearly before but also like comes from a different background like she goes like tit for tat with that dude in, in terms of like the set piece stuff for this one if i remember it's been a long time since i saw this movie and some of the details most of the details have kind of left my brain um or gotten mixed into the other two police story movies um but like i do kind of remember like there being an interesting dynamic between like in terms of the action 
where Jackie Chan is kind of like the the bumbling, like pratfalling guy, and she is like the hyper competent one. Like, am I remembering? Yeah, like which I think is like an interesting thing, too. Like it's almost like a like um like the I don't know. There, it's like the different sides of like that technical wizardry about it, right? Like there's something like very like uh amazing about the way that Jackie Chan is able to look like a kind of like fool just barely clinging to his life um as he does these things and there's something like really amazing about the way that like Michelle Yeoh like barely breaks a sweat (laughs) well and it's also fun because you know usually like if this was an American movie you know especially like a Bond movie you know like they there's been so many Bond movies where like James Bond's doing James Bond stuff and and for all intents and purposes he's usually like the bumbling idiot to the especially in like recent ones like you usually you'll have somebody like um like Eva Green or uh uh like Leah Seydoux like somebody who's very competent with him but then they like end up like falling in love with him, you know, or like beca- becoming a romantic plot. And like in this movie, again, uh, Jackie Chan's character is with Maggie Chung. Like they're they're a relationship, but he is like, but he also is recognizing how hot Michelle Yao is. And Michelle Yao, like the way that she like like completely start like shuts him down including the final line of the movie being like get out of here like go go away like i don't want to see you anymore um it's pretty funny like it's a very unromantic thing it's more just like we have to do this job together let's deal with it i think she is often kind of typecast in that hyper competent um role um like when she's in the Bond film that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, she's not like the Bond girl. She's like another agent or something, right? Um, so there's, it, it's interesting how she would kind of burst onto the scene from pageants um, as like in some ways a sex symbol, but also like presented as, as Michael was saying, primarily like an athlete. Like, look at what this um, extremely impressive person can do. Yeah, and and. I mean, like I even just like the way that she works the actions, you know, because a lot of the action scenes are, like I said, like they're they're you know relatively complicated in terms of like the choreography and like how they're gonna set up to get to the different things in terms of like people moving and and, and things of that sort. And she always hands handles it really like it's it's pretty effortless you know i can see why they made super cop 2 which is like more geared on her character compared to making more police stories um because uh she really does like have her own whole her own whole persona as a character rather than um again being like a sidekick to jackie chan she never feels like that in the movie (laughs) when it's true it's true so hot though (laughs) yeah Miss Malaysia. Yeah, like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, Bonk can put me in horny jail, but, like, I, the entire time I was just like, what's up, Michelle? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, what's up? For still sure. ki- still yeah. hot today. St- st- still super attractive. So, you know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Honestly, killer cat. I don't I got nothing. That's all I got. It's, you know. Police Story 3, super fun. Michelle Yao's great in it. And I stared at her the entire time. So, you know, that's where we're at. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about Super Cop 2. Right. Then, which is... Um, she hot in that too? 
she's hot in it too. Like she also drives a really dope car at one point and, and wears fantastic clothing for a lot of it. Um, so if you just want to look at Michelle Yeoh being hot and awesome, here you go. Um, but you will have a hard time doing that if, if you want to watch Michelle Yeoh being hot and awesome because Super Cop 2 is an incredibly difficult movie to find. Um, it is not on any streaming services. Um, you cannot... I think you can buy a DVD of it on Amazon. that are They're selling on the secondhand market for like over... Hundred dollars, um, and and there are not there, there are not places to torrent it either, from what I can tell. Um, so I watched this movie on YouTube uh, in like three forty p or whatever that is, um, and. Uh, it doesn't have in true English subtitles. Um, it was uploaded with French subtitles, and you can ask YouTube to like auto translate with AI the French subtitles. So it's amazing. <laughs> I I have a true artifact of the digital era, <laughs> really, or an artifact of this movie not getting good distribution, but also an artifact of the digital era. Uh, I feel like I watched this movie through a particular, you know, malady of the the current digital era. Um, but it's it's okay. Um, I feel like a lot of my descriptions of it are going to be um, similar to things that y'all have said, though maybe more of like the negative qualities of those things. Um, it is a much lower budget movie than uh, from what I've seen of the, the police story series. And from what I've heard about for, uh, your movie, uh, Zach, um, Jackie Chan is in it for a second. I will talk about a scene in a bit, but like I was looking at, um, the, the box office for these movies and police story one, two, and three were all making like 20,000, 30,000, uh, dollars. Um, super cop two is made nine or sorry. Did I just say thousand? Twenty million, thirty million dollars. Um, yeah. I was about to say Th this huh. movie made <laughs> nine million dollars, so it was not pushed in the same way. I don't think it doesn't seem like it has that much money to throw around. Um, the set pieces are kind of few and far between, to be honest. Um, you get a set piece with Michelle Yeoh, who's like in the middle of a skirmish at the beginning. And there's one scene where she has like a true martial arts fight with somebody else. Um, but most of it is like shot reverse shot gunplay. Um, there is a car chase at one point that's really well done, actually. It's like uh, in really tight, heavy traffic uh, with a lot of long shots. And it like, kind of feels dangerous to watch happen. Um, but this is another movie where there's kind of an unfortunate amount of Michelle Yeoh. Like, just even though she's ostensibly the lead in this one, she doesn't, there's not Jackie Chan to steal the spotlight. She's just really not in the movie as much as she should be, despite the fact that she is the protagonist. Um, in this one, I don't know if how consistent this is with the lore of, uh, of Flea's Story 3, but in this one, she is working for Interpol. Um, and she is, uh, like considered a absolute top agent in Interpol. She's a super um, cop. The, she's a super cop. The second, uh, super cop. Um, and she, she gets this award at the beginning and it, it's almost has this, um, like 
uh, triumph of the will ass like propaganda for the the Chinese government um, scene where she gets awarded um, her like major top award and this movie is totally propaganda for the Chinese government like top to bottom from what I can tell of it through the uh, the bad subtitles um, it is it is sort of the Chinese equivalent of some of the propaganda movies that we have over here um, but like it, the cop plot, the the actual crime plot, the center of it is is kind of either vague or again bad subtitles. It just seems like the people that she's after are stealing money from Chinese banks, uh, which are of course run by the Chinese government. Um, and when she tracks the one of the guys down at the very end, she accuses him of like you you think it's okay to kill rich people because of course he like ends up having to kill some rich people who he stole money from or whatever. Um, so there's there's kind of a you know a, a weird communist class element of like this guy is. Um, I don't know, go stealing from the state. Um, she also has a, um, a, a male um, love interest character who's kind of an ex-boyfriend um, who his problem, like the reason why they can't be together is because she, he wants to go off and, and seek money, be rich, and you later find out he's like doing that through getting involved with crime. Um, and and the, the rest of the movie is mostly kind of this love triangle um, between her and another agent that she's been assigned to work with. Um, and this guy is like not a particularly interesting character. He's not a Jackie Chan. He's just kind of this lovesick puppy dog guy who's following around Michelle Yeoh and making goo-goo eyes at her. Um, and at the end of the movie, they don't really even get together. Um her ex, who she was still kind of like holding on to emotionally, despite the fact that um, he's like an enemy of the state and, and a, a petite bourgeoisie or whatever, um, she he dies and she cries about it. And the guy who's in love with her kind of like consoles her for a second. But then the movie ends like it doesn't really suggest that she gets with this guy. So it's a weird kind of like half romance movie, half action movie um, where the action doesn't really kick into high gear all that much either. Um, it's, it's sitting in this weird no man's land um, where I wasn't particularly interested in it. It does have a nice um, uh, electronic score, though. Um, that um, just is was way more like active and, and, and impressive than I was expecting it to be. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's any any other things to mention here. Oh, we were talking about stunts. Um, and there is there's some stunts in this movie that uh, look quite painful. Um, there are stunts where people are jumping from rooftops onto the the roofs of cars, um, like you were describing, Zach. Uh, but they're not. The one that Michelle jumps onto is not a moving car. It's just sitting beneath her. And, like, it just looks like she, like, breaks her legs when she falls. There's a scene where she, like, gets knocked in front of a car on the street and, like, falls flat on her face in the concrete. And I'm like, this is not even stunt work. Or this is not even, like, athleticism. It's just, like, putting your body through the ringer. Uh, but... There is the one nice martial arts uh, sequence in the middle. And I also want to tell you about the Jackie Chan sequence. So I don't know un exactly like how Jackie Chan factors into the plot of this movie because A, uh, bad subtitles, 
B, I did not watch uh, Super Cop or Police Story 3 Super Cop, so I don't know what is being called back to here. But all of a sudden, Jackie Chan and I think Sammo Hung show up in drag. Um, and <laughs> then they, they proceed to uh, basically play frogger they like climb over or like uh uh uh, they parkour over moving traffic um and then they kind of disappear out of the movie after that moment um but it's very very funny (laughs) i don't know if they ever actually have an interaction with michelle Yeoh's character um but i just enjoyed that brief intermission (laughs) where i saw jackie chan and drag jumping through traffic (laughs) we need more of that we need more of that in the world. <laughs> um, well, that, t- that holds up with Super Cop lore. Yeah. I, it's funny. you. Mean- what is the suit? Is Jackie Chan in drag at any moment? No, in unfortunately not. Super Cop? Um, oh, it's funny, though, because like I also had a weird viewing like experience. I started with... So the, the only streaming option that they have through platforms is Pluto. And Pluto has the North American cut of of police story three but it's only in spanish and so whenever they whenever jackie chan was showing up to the police station and was saying buenos dias i was like (laughs) i don't know about this um so then i found a cut the um mandarin cut of the film the like the actual original cut um and uh was watching that um and it had english uh english uh subtitles and that was fine but then it cut out so then i had to rent the movie on amazon prime and that's the north american cut which is a weird like i was i put it on the fact sheet like they cut like a like a bunch of scenes where they're like doing this the they cut the scenes that are really funny where they're like we're uh this drug cart are you like are you guys into covering drug related crimes they're like we, as the Hong Kong police, we love doing drug-related crimes, which I think is a very important scene. Um, they also cut the scene with the police superiors who were discussing the plan to send him on the secret mission, which is hilarious. That's also a funny one. Um, they cut the scene where she's trying to teach him how to like operate in, in mainland China, which is also a funny scene. Um, and then... Uh, and then they also have a uh, where the gang leader uh, meets with a sexy woman who's lounging in his mansion and then reveals that she's a drug addict, which I was like, that sounds hilarious, too. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was like, but it, like, God, the North, the North American one was so terrible, though, because it was it was English dubbed over. and Jackie Chan and Michelle Yao did their own dubbing. But the rest of the dubs were, ooh, baby, bad. Like just, we're just <laughs> bad. Yeah, I'm sorry that you had to sit um, through that. And, like I was telling, I was sending Andrew picture like clips of it, but the movie ends, and so it ends. And like with Jackie Chan movies, they usually have you know a whole little sequence where they show how he does the stunts and things like that. So they're doing that while playing the song Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> and i was like holy just for the american yeah. audience right like that's what that's not how it plays no, 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 it's just for the americans and i was just like holy shit and then they had devo specially wrote and performed a song for the north american release of the film called super cop that plays over the credits what? <laughs> is it good is it a good it's devo okay. song? oh my gosh <laughs> 
It's honestly they should have played that instead of Kung Fu Fighting. Um, and then they had some American composer like compose a whole new score for it. Um, and they also created a new title sequence, which is as as I described before we started recording. It's like Guy Madden becomes obsessed with Mao Sing Chung and uh Mao Zedong and uh <laughs> Jackie Chan for whatever reason and they all mash that together and make a title sequence. It's like at one point there's like Jackie Chan's face so and Mao Zedong's face and they like are switching over one another. It's like it's great. Yeah, Wait, it's crazy. What? <laughs> I need to see this movie. Um I would like to offer a correction, by the way. Um, the guy who cameoed with Jackie Chan in my movie was not Sammo Hung. It was Eric Sang. Uh, I would also like to add that I forgot to mention that that scene is scored by the Nutcracker Suite. Uh, <laughs> for seemingly no reason. <laughs> Anyways, what you about to say, Michael? Oh, I was going to say, it's an interesting and sad thing that... Um just the distribution for these movies is so subpar. Um, I don't know. Like these, these are not like obscure movies in, in like a global sense or within their own markets. Uh, and like both of these, like Jackie Chan and Michelle Yao are like well known in the United States at this point. Uh, and it's just weird that there's not better releases for them. Like, uh, for my movie, I could have rented this movie exclusively on Amazon. Like, I don't think it's rented anywhere else. Um, but for $6, um, like, that is a fairly high price for a digital rental of a movie that's over 30 years old. Um, and as far as I know, you know, as long as this Just Watch page is correct, like, that is the only way to watch it online. Um, and I am unclear if there's even like a good DVD release. Um, yeah. And I guess this is the case for a lot of action stars who got their start in like really low budget action movies. Um, but I don't know the police story movies aren't super low budget. Um, but I, I do think that there's, um, there's often just like not distribution for the, the back catalog of of people like that in a lot of cases um though people like jackie chan there's there's an exception because you have like criterion releasing a couple jackie chan movies there's kind of an international interest in jackie chan because he's been a crossover success but michelle yo has also been a major crossover success um she's been in like when i'm looking on letterbox of her movies her biggest movies are movies that just have come out a couple of years ago uh, everything ever all at once crazy rich asians shang chi the guardians the galaxy volume two like all the kung fu panda movies like she is a household name um and it would be really great if uh, the the things that she kind of got her start making and uh, uh, were available to be watched, especially because one of the things that uh, she's kind of known for and um, admired for is her ability to do like the martial arts stuff. A lot of her more recent stuff in America has um, let, not really given her as much of a chance to do that. Um, so, I mean, I think it's... I'm excited to see um, the movie we're going to watch next week, uh, Wing Chun, which does seem like it's a full-on wuxia movie with Michelle Yeoh leading from beginning to end. Um, but we'll see, I suppose. <laughs> well, 
I believe that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary then. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we listed all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you'd like to support the show, uh, patreon.com slash cinematary, whether it's $1 or $5 or whatever dollars, one million dollars. We're happy to we're happy to take them uh, to help support the program. Uh, thank you to our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Candice Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Andrew just told you what we got next week, so uh, we'll see you then. <laughs>